Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. This morning, we're going to be looking, like I said, at, in, in the book of 1 Samuel. And I'm going to ask you this question. How many of you would agree with the song that we just sang, kind of the nature of that? How many of you would agree that we serve an awesome God and we worship an awesome God, right? We worship an awesome God. We know that He is good, right? We know that church mantra, God is good all the time, all the time God is good. We'd say that He is omniscient. We know about His character. We know how amazing God is, right? We believe that. We profess that. We confess that as believers, I've shared with, uh, with Graceway many times before that there are two things that if I'm struggling with the magnitude of God, because sometimes in life, we know God is big, but we haven't seen Him yet, so we struggle with understanding just how big He is. So there are two things that I go to all the time to begin to help me just get a grasp on how big God is. One of those is the ocean. Now, you may say, how often are you leaving Lexington to go to the ocean? Not very often. That's why I take it in when I can. But if I, I just love to sit on the beach, either at sunset or at sunrise, when there's not a lot of people out there, and just look out at the vastness of the ocean and realize, you know what, Derek? You're not as big as you think you are, right? We get real wrapped up, and we can like make our self-centered world and our self-centered universe sometimes. And when I look out the expanse of that ocean, and I'm reminded that the Word of God says that his grace and his forgiveness is like an endless ocean that can, just drowns our sin and consumes our sin. Remind of just how good God is and how endless and vast his love is for me. The other thing I do, I like to look out at the ocean. The other thing I like to do is to look up into the heavens and be reminded that God just spoke all that into existence. And there are pieces of this universe that we have not yet seen with our eye through telescopes. It's to think that not only are there millions and billions of stars, but also that many numbers of galaxies that are out there as well. Folks, I, I say all that not to scare you, because when you think about how big everything really is and how small we really are, it can make us scared. But I say all that to remind us that the one who's in charge of all of it, we call him Abba. We call him Dad. We call him our heavenly father. And he says, after running all of that in the universe, he knows enough about us to know how many hairs are on our head. He knows how many grains of sand are on the ocean. He knows every tear that falls from our eyes. We may be very, very infinitesimal and insignificant in the grand scheme of everything and the world around us. We're like this tiny little speck of a speck. But with God... And, and to God, the one who created it all, we are big and significant enough that he said, I want to redeem you and therefore I'm willing to give my son so that you can have eternity with me. That's the goodness of the God that we worship. No matter how mighty and how grand he is, we hold that place in his heart. And it's, I just believe there might be somebody that just needs to hear that, to, to be encouraged in that. Maybe you come in after a week where you're like, man, I don't know who cares about me. Biggest person that you can imagine cares about you more than anybody else ever could. If you were to take the amount of love that has existed in humanity from the beginning of humanity and put it all into one and pile it all into one sum total, it wouldn't even touch the tip of the iceberg to the amount of love that he has for you. 
that our God has for you. That's the kind of God that we worship today. So with all that in, in, in context and understanding all that, we know that we serve a big God. We know that God is, is huge. Why is it then that we still struggle with living with a sense of awe and wonder of him? We struggle with it, don't we? we? We sometimes make God way smaller than he should be. We are too easily and too often prone to lose sight of his greatness and turn our attention to other things and to depend on other things as our all in all. If we really believe that God is as big and as awesome that we say he is and that we sing about him being, then why do we seem to struggle with worshiping him? Why do we seem to struggle with trusting him like we know we should? See, I want to trust this big God up until he takes me to a place that I don't think I can handle. See, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't line up with him being a big God and bigger than me because if we'll only follow him to places we think we can handle, that means we don't think God is as big and as capable as we may profess him to be. And that's what we're going to be dealing with today. We're going to be looking at it through the lens of, of Israel. We talked about it a little bit with the kids this morning. That we're going to be looking at a moment when Israel is kind of looking around them rather than keeping their eyes on God. And as they look around, they begin to feel like they are, they are deficient of something. Like they are at a place where they are not as, as, as in good standing with all the other nations of the world. That they're missing out on something, and that was to have an earthly king. So we're going to look at this and, and understand that what Israel does many times, what we see in the history of Israel, I believe God puts that there for the New Testament church to see that it's kind of like a living metaphor for how our relationship with the Lord. As fickle as Israel was, up and down with Jesus, and, or up and down with God, is the way we can sometimes be in our relationship with Christ. There are moments when we feel like, man, I'm on fire for Jesus, and there's nothing coming between me and him. And then there, then there are times in our life where we feel like, man, there's a distance there's a distance and, and, and my soul feels dry and, and, and weak and it feels like my prayers aren't getting higher than the ceiling. Those are times that Israel went through with God as well. And every time that was by their own doing, God hasn't moved. Jesus doesn't move. We're the ones who do that. Like that old hymn says, I'm prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. I'm prone to leave the God I love. So what we're going to look at this morning is when we look at Israel, we're going to apply that to us as the church. We're going to apply it to us as believers today. And really, the title of the message is simply this, Heavy is the Head that Wears the Crown. We're going to be talking about when Israel wanted a king, and God said, you don't really need a king, you've already got one. But be careful what you ask for, because you just, you just might get it, right? So, the thing about Israel, before we get into our text this morning, uh, what we see in this is... the. We're in 1 Samuel, and the writer here and kind of the main character in this narrative so far is the prophet Samuel, or the judge Samuel. And of course, that's fitting because it's named 1 Samuel, so he's kind of the leading character. But really, the leading character is God, because God had chosen Samuel to be a mouthpiece to a generation of his nation. And so that's really a lesson for us as well. You may think you're the main character of your story, and you're writing this story in your life, and you think you're the main character, but you're not. Your creator should be your main character. Our creator should be the one that we look at, and that should be, when our life story is told, the one that should get the most credit and most glory should not be us. It should be Christ. And the thing about Israel here in the text is that they're a unique kind of people. God hand-selected them, like we talked about with the kids. He made a covenant with Abraham years before to create this nation that would be different from all the other nations around said, you will be my people, I will be your God, and I will bless all nations through you. 
Now, sometimes that blessing took its way in the form of, I'm going to bless you, and others are going to see how I bless you, and they're going to get jealous as anything. And then what I want you to do is turn around and say, if you follow our God, he will bless you in the way that he has blessed us. That there is no God but God. Your gods are not just little g gods. They're not even gods. You've just made them up and conceived them in your mind. They were handpicked to be his representative nations. But Israel had this consistent problem. Even though they were handpicked by God, and they were the representative nation of God's power and his provision and his blessing, they looked around and they thought that they just weren't measuring up with everybody else. They looked at other nations and then they began to worship their little g-gods. They turned from God. They would worship Baal. They would worship, uh, they would worship Molech. They would worship all of these other false gods. They would just turn from God. It seemed like whoever they were around, they decided, hey, I'm going to look like them. They were kind of like spiritual chameleons. And they were willing to walk away from the God who had, who had set them up and who had blessed them. And they were willing to walk away from him so many times. And instead of assimilating the world into God's kingdom, which is what God wanted them to do, what did they do? They chose to be assimilated themselves into the kingdoms of the world. They chose to do that. Does that sound familiar? So God raised up prophets and judges that would say, I will be the voice, that we're going to be the human voice of God to tell people, thus saith the Lord, to guide people's eyes and hearts back to God. And God was always gracious when his people turned back. That's the beautiful thing about him. You would think, after a few centuries of this back and forth stuff, God would say, you know what? It's, it's not me, it's you. I'm going to move on to someone else. But God keeps forgiving, keeps taking back, keeps restoring that relationship with his people. And God used Samuel to call the people back to worshiping God. Around chapter 7, right before we get into chapter 8, there's this period of time where this great revival takes place, and they come back to God, and Samuel is leading them, and all they're asking is, we want to follow God. We want to follow Him. He is our King. He is our Creator. He is our everything. Samuel had led them to that place. But then somewhere between chapter 7 and 8, something changes, and some time passes, and Samuel is now old Samuel. And he's getting ready to pass off the scene. And people are not as faithful as they should be. And they have this new idea. And they're looking to the future and saying, looking at a world without Samuel in it and thinking, okay, where do we turn? What do we do? And that's where we pick up our text. Let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 8, beginning in verse number 1. It says, When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges over Israel. His firstborn son's name was Joel, and his second was Abijah, or Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. However, his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned toward dishonest prophet. They took bribes and they perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and went to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, look, you're old. <laughs> Can you imagine going, <laughs> going to your preacher about, look, man, you're just old, buddy. You know, look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Therefore, appoint a king to judge us. And the same as all the other nations have. And when they said, give us a king to judge us, Samuel considered their demand to be wrong. So he prayed to the Lord, but the Lord told him, listen, listen to the people and everything that they say to you. They haven't rejected you. They've rejected me as their king. They're doing the same thing to you that they have done to me since the day I brought them out of Egypt until this very day. Abandoning me and worshiping other gods, listen to them, but solemnly warn them and tell them about the customary rights of the king who will reign over them. And we're going to look at those customary rights in verses 10 through 17, or in 10 through 18.
just a minute, but let's skip down to verse number 19. After he has this speech and warns them, as God says, here's what they say. He's, basically what Samuel says is, consider what you're asking for. And he's hoping and praying that they'll say, no, we're going to stick with God. And that's what they, here's what they say in verse number 19. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we must have a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations. Our king will judge us, will go out before us, and he'll fight our battles. And so Samuel listened to all the people's words and then repeated them to the Lord. And the Lord said, listen to them, appoint a king for them. And Samuel told the men of Israel, each of you go back to your city. And so began the process towards a royal line and a royal family in the nation of Israel. Let's pray. God, pray this morning that you would be honored and glorified by everything, and I pray that you would speak in this brief time that we have left together to look into your word. Teach us, Holy Spirit. Guide us into truth. And I pray that you would do in us what you have intended to do and that we would be open and willing uh, to be moldable in your hands today. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. So this text basically marks the, the historical transition from Israel being a, the, a theocracy, one that is run by God and ruled by God and his appointed people, uh, his judges and his prophets, to a time when they would become just another kind of monarchy, uh, just like the other nations in the world. And up until this point, Israel's government was basically under the direct rule of God with a, a representative that God appointed himself to live among them. What we see here is that this is not a God move that the people ask for. This is a move of Israel, something that they wanted outside of the will of God. And what I really want to do is hone in on verses 19 through 20 today. What the leaders said to Samuel after they learned all the things that would happen once they had a king, what did they say? They said three specific things that really teaches us about ourselves as well. They said their hearts wanted to trust something other than God and someone other than God. It revealed where their hearts were, where their trust lied, and what they really thought that they needed. But we also see in these verses a lot of ourselves. Before we get too hard on Israel, a lot of times we need to kind of look at it and say, okay, what is this telling me about myself? Because we act like this a lot. These are truths that we need to apply and kind of bend to our, our own sense of idolatry at times too. The first truth that we see in this passage is that all of us are searching for a king. We may not even realize it. We may not even attest to it or confess it. But we are all in this long, lifelong pursuit in search of a king. And some of us have had quite a few kings or queens in our lives that have been kind of dominating it all. See, we're obviously going to see that the people's decision to call for the king wasn't the right call. It wasn't what they were, should have done. See, Samuel tried to get them to understand what was right. Samuel tried to get them to understand that it wasn't really supposed to be their call, but they still wanted it. They still said, man, we want a king. Look at verse number 19 again. It says, the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we have to have a king over us. We must have a king. Now, the truth is that they didn't have to have a king. They already had a king, and that king was never going to be dethroned. The truth is they didn't have to have a king, but they weren't wrong in saying that they had to have one because we all have to have someone. In America, we love our independence. We don't have a king, right? We haven't had a king since 1776, amen? We told that king where to go, right? All right, we're done. Okay, stay over there on your little island. We'll handle things from here right? So we love our freedom. We love the fact that we don't have a king, but we all are still searching for a king that's going to run our lives. We all serve something. We are all created to worship something or someone, right? 
This is an undeniable biblical truth. We all serve a king, every one of us. I'm not speaking politically, I'm speaking spiritually. And I'm speaking in a sense of, of, of our values. We all serve a king to some degree. Last year, I, uh, I had the privilege to preach through the book of, uh, of Romans at, at Graceway. And uh, in Romans chapter 6, Paul's describing what it looks like to live as a Christian. He says, look, the gospel has set us free from sin and death, but you're not the master of your own domain. Just because we've been set free from sin and death and we've been set towards heaven, that doesn't make us the master of our own domain to just do whatever we want to until we get to heaven. To just take our get out of hell free card and just live in complete license and do whatever we want to. See, he says, we're going to need to determine if we want to serve righteousness or if we want to keep on slaving away and serving sin and the flesh. Because while we may not reap the eternal, the eternal wages of our sin and being death, we can still reap wages of our sin right now. We're in that consequence, the consequences of those and, and those types of things. Jesus said the same thing in the Gospels. He said this, he says, you cannot serve two opposing masters. You have to serve one or the other. We can't serve sin and, the and righteousness. We can't serve the flesh and righteousness. We cannot serve God and mammon, as it says in the King James. Joshua said, you have to choose who you're going to serve. You're going to either serve God or you're going to serve the idols of your heart. You're going to have to serve it. So the truth is that we're all going to serve a king because we're all hardwired to serve. We're all hardwired to worship. There's this pre-configured software inside of us that God created us with that we're made to worship. Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher, said there's a God-shaped hole inside of every one of our hearts. And we are all desperately searching, but God is the only one who will fit that piece. Y'all remember those, if you grew up in the 80s like I did and you were a little kid, remember those red and blue like octagon toys, you know, the plastos, you had the shapes, and, there was, and, and you, you couldn't put a circle through a square, a circle went through a circle. It's amazing how they taught us back then. It was amazing. Now we just have a screen, right? But, you know, pieces, and it was really cool. And you could step on them in the middle of the night, you hear your parents shouting. Um, <laughs> bad word. But, you know, there was, that's the way God is. We have this God-shaped hole inside of our hearts, and only He can fill it properly. But man, we will spend our entire lives, our entire lives searching for what fills it, and only will we find that God is the one who fills that hole. We're all pre-configured to worship something, and, we, and what we serve reveals where our heart really is. You ever notice people always say, man, I just don't have time. I, I just don't have time for the Word. I, I don't have time to to really grow in Christ. Well, uh, you know, I always want to ask somebody, explain that to me. Do, do you have like, what, only like 20 hours in a day? Because we all have 24 hours a day, right? What matters to us will get done. What matters to us will get our attention. We have this way of being able to prioritize what matters. And what we serve determines or tells people what has our hearts. Our lives can really, honestly, be characterized by this resume of kings or God's idols that we've served through our lives. Through our life, there's going to be different seasons where we serve different kings, and we're going to be tempted to serve different kings. And they're all going to compete for the throne of our lives. When we're younger, maybe we, to, we, we serve the king of popularity or you know, just not sticking out when you went to school. When we get a little bit older, we serve the king of money or we serve the king of, of power or we serve the king of whatever. But we're all tempted to serve different kings at different seasons in our life. And everyone has a king. We're hardwired and there's no shortage of would-be kings around us. 
It's not like we're out there looking like, man, anybody want to be my king? I just don't see anybody wanting to be my king. No, there's all kinds of things competing for our attention, competing for our hearts all over the place. But true success in life, the Word tells us, comes from giving God our heart at all times, at every stage, at every season. Will He be the King that I follow? And the thing is, we all have, a king, we all have to have a King. And the second point is, if we all have to have a King, what we normally do is look for a King that we think we can control. We look for a King that we think we can control. If we know, okay, I've got to serve something, I've got to do something, I've got to look for something that I can control, right? That's what we find in verse number 20. Look at this. He says, what they told Samuel was, we have to have a king. Then we'll be like all the other nations. Now catch what they say. He'll, our king will judge us. Our king will go out before us. And our king will fight our battles. See, in this text, everybody loved Samuel. They weren't telling Samuel, hey, we don't love you. You failed at your job. What he's saying is, your sons are jerks. And we know you're not going to be around for a while, so we're looking to the future, and we realize we need somebody who's going to do what's best for us. See, he was a good leader, and he spoke well for God, but Samuel was beginning to get older and maybe looking to retire, and his sons, Joel and Abijah, they were the worst guys you could find, right? Verse 3 tells us what they did. He says, their sons did not walk in his ways. They turned towards dishonest prophet. They took bribes, and they perverted justice. So the power that they had, they used their power to promote themselves. They used their power that they had to serve the people. They used it to just serve themselves and to enrich themselves while others suffered around them. So, but they knew that they needed a leader. They knew that once Samuel was gone, they were going to need a leader. And what is interests me is they didn't trust God enough to realize that once Samuel was off the scene, he would see fit to have another judge come in to actually do what needed to be done. So they said, look, if our choices are your sons or someone else, we want someone else. See, they had a king in God, and they said they wanted a king just like everybody else. And look what they said. They said, we'll be like all the other nations when we do this. We'll be like everybody else. See, up until now, they're propped up as being a special nation. They say, you know what? We're going to accept just being like everybody else. See, as the children of Israel began to claim the land promised to them, they saw that every nation they went into battle with, every nation that they saw, they all had these kings that went into battle with them. And they had seen some of the kings actually die in battle when God gave them the victory. Like I said, there's no shortage of would-be kings around. In the world, kings are a dime a dozen. But a good king, it's only in Christ. See, they wanted a king that they could see they wanted a king that they could touch. They wanted a, a king, ultimately, that they could trust would do what they wanted them to do at all times, right? And that's what kings in the day did. They went in out into battle. They fought for them. They led them. They tried to make them prosperous. They did all of those things. See, God did all the things that they needed in a king, but they wanted one that they could touch. They wanted one that they could walk up to the throne and say, Lord, if it pleases the king, I would like to have this. And they wanted a king that they could actually play power play games with to eventually get what they wanted to get. Notice how self-centric their request is. Keep that verse up on the screen. Look at the request one more time. We want one that will be our king to go out before us and to fight our battles. They wanted to be like everybody else. They wanted a king to judge in their favor. They wanted a king that would make them prosperous. They wanted a king that would protect them and fight their battles that they thought was important. They didn't want a king. They wanted a servant. And isn't that what we want? 
in the God that we worship many times? That's what we're facing today in this consumeristic type of Christianity that we have in America today. We don't want a Jesus who's our Lord. We want a Jesus who just makes all of our problems go away. That's what we want. We want a Jesus who's going to go out before me and make everything good. That's going to balance my checkbook with his miraculous hand. That's going to do all this. It's going to make my disease go away because I want it to go away. Well, I, want a, I want a Jesus who's going to make my life just beautiful and fight all the battles. They wanted a personal champion for their will and their desire. They wanted someone who would make all their dreams come true. Having a king was a means to their personal end, an end that they got to define. But you see, when we serve God, what we say is, and we follow Christ, what we're saying is, see, there's these, these words in the New Testament where Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. If anybody wants to follow after me, I'm supposed to deny himself take up his cross and follow me, die to self. Later on, Paul says, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. See, following Jesus and him being our Savior means he's also our Lord, which means I don't get to dictate the path anymore. I have to follow on the path. But many of us, we say, well, if I have to have a king, if I have to worship somebody, I might as well worship someone that I can control and that I can direct and I can guide. We'll follow Jesus so long as we can see him doing all the good things. We'll follow Jesus so long as he's doing the things that make sense to us. So long as it's not costing me too much to follow him. But the minute that it costs, the minute that he leads in a direction that we don't understand, the minute it gets uncomfortable, the minute there are questions, it's time to go find a new king. It's time to go find one that actually will do the job that we want. It's kind of like the way we treat our basketball coaches around here in Kentucky right? Ain't winning enough games, man. I remember when we used to hang banners a whole lot more than we do now. Tell you what, buy out that contract. Go find another one, right? Then that guy doesn't do good. Then what moves on? You know, what, what happens? We move on to the next one. And the, uh, except for we, most of us sit here and we complain about, I want that other guy that was back there. Man, things were really good when we had this guy. That's what Israel did too, right? We're tempted as we follow Christ to look back and think, man, I remember what it was like before I was a Christian. I got to call the shots. But do we remember where that got us? It got us dead in our trespasses and sins. Right? And so this is where, this is where we have to decide. I have to have a king. And what we normally do is look for a king that we can control when what we should do is look for a king who is for us who is for us. Let me encourage you with this truth. Jesus and God may not always be the king that we want, but he is always the king that we need. He may not always be and lead exactly the way we would have him lead, and he may not always do exactly what we would have him do, but he will always be the one that does what is needed. What is needed. You know how we know that? Do you, th you know how we can be sure of that? Do you think that God really wanted to give his son so that we could have eternal life? But was it needed? Yes. He's the king that always does what is needed. May not always do what we want. Even sometimes what he wants. But he does what is needed. He's the only king. And, Jesus, and this will lead to the third thing. is Jesus is the king that we need we don't need to find a king we can control. We need to find a king that we need. And why do I say that? Because he's the only one who doesn't need anyone else. See, what do kings need in order to be a king? 
or queens. So let's, let's be, it's 2023, so let's be equal here. What do kings and queens need in order to be kings or queens? They need constituents. They need people, right? I, can't, I could stand up today and announce myself as king of Holmesville. And the three people that live in my house wouldn't even worship me or wouldn't even bow to me. Be like, you crazy, right? We ain't bowing to you. I've been trying for 20 years. It hasn't worked. Right? A king needs his people, right? He needs his people. And he needs, and in order to have his people, he needs to have some way to hold them in subjection, right? So he, they use their laws to hold them in subjection. But what does God do with his law for us? His law is not for our, for our, to be held in check. His law is for our liberty and for our freedom and for our good and benefit. That's what his word tells us. Jesus is the only king who doesn't need anyone. God doesn't need to be God in order to be God. He doesn't lose his king status if no one follows him. He's still God. He just is. God was king before us, and he'll be king long after us. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. In the beginning before all of us, there was the king. And long after us, there will be the king. The question is, and what determines whether you'll be with the king, is whether you'll follow the king and trust him. He's the only king who doesn't need anyone. He's the only king that we have to answer to in the final analysis as well. See, when, it, when, when Samuel was all torn up about Israel wanting a king, knowing that it was a bad decision, God told him this. He says, give them what they want because they're not rejecting you, Samuel. And, and I have to put my place in Samuel's shoes at this point because as Samuel, you have to think, you have to be thinking, he's probably thinking, man, what has my ministry been, been for? My sons won't even follow me. And what I've said and how I've tried to direct them in the Lord. Now the people that I've tried to be the mouthpiece of God to don't even want to follow God anymore. He has to be thinking, man, they're not following. But I think that's an important thing we need to understand. Is that if Samuel had let the legacy of his life rest on whether he convinced everybody to follow, then he's going to fall short. What Samuel had to base the legacy of his life on is was he faithful to continue following the one. So this is what God reminds us, Samuel, I'm going to let you off the hook. They're not rejecting you. This is not, this is not a, an evaluation on your performance as my man. Because people ultimately are going to do what their heart follows them to do. He says, sometimes getting what they want is not going to be good for them. It's the only way that they're going to learn. And so he tells Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Just remind them that I'm the only one that keeps taking them back when they've been used up. And remind them that I'm the only one who won't take advantage of them ever. And he's the only king that we need. He's the only king that's the final answer in the final analysis of our lives. And he's the only king that can really be trusted. See, the thing about the would-be kings out there is that those would-be kings look out for number one. Kings look out for themselves. In order to be king, you need people. And in order to stay king, you got to keep the people from rising up to dethrone you. So you got to take control and you got to take power. They're always going to protect the crown. They're always going to make a name for themselves. And they've always got to use whatever it takes to get that. Let's go back to that piece that we skipped over in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 10, and 10 through 18. See, that's back when God says, hey, Samuel... Let them have the king, but before they decide, let them see exact, paint a picture for them, exactly what it's going to look like, exactly how things are going to change. So look at verse number 10. He says, Samuel told all the Lord's words to the people who were asking him for a king. 
And he said, these are the rights of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and put them to use in his chariots, on his horses, on running in front of his, in front of his chariots, which is basically, you're the first one to go down. Verse number 12 says, He can appoint them for his use as commanders or thousands of commanders of fifties to plow his ground and reap his harvest or to make his weapons of war and the equipment for his chariots. He can take your daughters to become perfumers and cooks and bakers. He can take your best fields, your vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He can take a tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give them to his officials and to his servants. He can take your male servants, your female servants, your best cattle and your donkeys and use them for his work. He can take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves can become his servants. And when that day comes, Israel, you will cry out because of the king you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord won't answer you on that day. These people wanted a king who would judge them fairly, who would go out before them and fight battles for them, but that doesn't look like the king in these verses, does it? doesn't look like that servant king that we think. So basically what he's saying is, you want a king, you get a king, you become the king's property, and everything you have that God has given you becomes the king's property as well. See, the king will judge in favor of the king. The king will go out for the king if it serves the king, and the king will fight the battles if it serves the king, and that kind of king can't be trusted. You say, yeah, that's probably worst case scenario, right? And they're probably thinking, yeah, we could eventually get a bad king, but we really don't see that happening, right? Because we're wise enough to choose the king that we need. How does that work in election time for us? Right? But here's what, and you may think that's just worst case scenario, but let me give you one. David, the second king that they get after Saul, what does the Bible say he is? He's the man after God's own heart that we saw last Sunday in Pastor, Pastor Chris's message. But what do we know about David? That guy was messed up, right? He did some crazy things. God says, don't census the people. Guess what David does? I think I'm going to census the people because it was an exercise in pride. Back in those days, kings were supposed to go out and lead their people in battle. But David said, you know what? I'm going to take this one off. I'm going to stay at home. And he gets all up in his fields for Bathsheba and he uses his power and influence as the king to bed Bathsheba. There's a, son, there, there's a child all of a sudden that comes from that. And then what does he have to do? He has to reduce himself to hiring a hit on Bathsheba's husband. So now he's involved in systematic murder of someone who was innocent. And God, here's the beauty about God's grace and forgiveness is God still says, that guy, that guy had a heart that was after my own. That's great. I mean, if David were to apply to be a, you know, a, a deacon or an elder at a church, I think we'd probably turn him down, right? Yeah, I got this affair in my past, and you know, I got, got murder, and we'd probably say, I don't know. I, I, you, maybe you just work in the youth ministry or something. I don't know. <laughs> work at the lock-in. That's fine. We'll see, how you, see if you get through that. That's pretty much like prison. So... But I'll say this one said, oh, that's got to be worst case scenario. Even one that they heralded as being a great king still looked out for the king. He had seasons where all I'm going to do is I'm going to look out for myself. And it led to problems that didn't just affect David. It affected the entire nation. The entire nation. But they said, no, give us the king. The point I'm getting at here is Jesus is the only king that we can completely and fully trust. When you see King Jesus described in the Gospels, you see him as being a king who gives of himself. I want you to look back at that passage that we looked at just a second ago. And I want you to count the number of times that it says he can take. 
A king in, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 10 through 18 says, king can take, it says that six times, and it encompasses a whole litany of things that the king has access to and can take without even proving why he needs to take it. But I want you to look at what the Bible says about King Jesus and what he does. See, Jesus isn't the king that takes. Jesus is the king that gives. He's the king that gives. He says, come to me, all who are weary and are heavy laden, all who are tired and burnt out and broken down, and I will give you rest. The thief, he says, comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I have come, Jesus said, to give you life abundantly. I have come, Jesus says, to seek and to save the lost. And in John chapter 14, verse 27, he has, says, I have come and I give you my peace. This is the king that we are invited to serve. This is the king that we are invited to follow. It's kind of a no-brainer, isn't it? But see, the thing about all the would-be kings of the world is they're going to push and they're going to pull you into service, demand that you give of yourself and take everything, leaving you used up, burned up, and spit out. But Jesus is the one who takes you burned up, used up, and spit out and makes beauty from ashes and turns you into something beautiful for his glory. That's the gospel. You follow the would-be kings, you end up in ashes. You follow Jesus, he takes your ashes and he takes your brokenness and he makes it beautiful. That's the beauty of King Jesus. That's the beauty of, 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 of our King God. So as we close out, let me ask you this question. What kings have you been serving? Or queens, what kings or queens have you been serving? Little idols, giving pieces of yourself to that, and all they're doing is sucking you dry. And you know it, but you just can't stop it. You know that it's sucking you dry. You know that, it's, it, you know that you're getting the brunt of the deal. But you're just like, man, I don't know where else to turn. Can I submit to you today to turn to Jesus? Turn to him. Say, I want to, but it's so difficult because his way is so different. As you trust him a little bit, he gives you the ability to trust him a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. See, we're all searching for a king and we all hope that we can find one that we can control, but we need Jesus because he's the one who gives to us and doesn't take. As we close out this morning, I'd like if we could to bow our heads or just close your eyes, if you would, or whatever you need to do to just really focus and block out all of the things because I want you to hear this passage from Ephesians chapter 3. I just want you to hear it and let it just kind of wash over your spirit this morning because this is what King Jesus does for us. Paul says this. He says, for this reason, I kneel before the, kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray that he may grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you being rooted and firmly established in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width and height and depth of God's love and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, glory to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. Church, this is what the king gives.
The king gives us all his fullness, all his glory. Gives us all his promise. And wherever you might be and wherever you may be sitting today or whatever you've got heading into tomorrow, this is where you sit. You sit, if you are Christ, if you belong to him, you sit having all things given to you because you follow the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This is what the king gives. He gives us more than all we could ask or think. And he doesn't just seek to rule over us. He offers to reign in us. And some of us, that's what we need to hear as we engage in our relationship with him. We're not, rela- we're not relating to a God who just wants to rule over us. He wants to reign in us. There's a difference. Thank you for listening today. At Graceway, our strongest desire is to glorify Christ by telling everyone about His grace. If you have questions or are in need of spiritual help, please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylex.org and click on the Contact Us section, or you can email us at gracewaylex at gmail.com. Our worship services are held each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.